Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Hey, y'all. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Growth Equation Podcast. This week, we are going to talk about coaching and not just coaching in sport, but also coaching outside of sport. Why it's valuable, what are some of the pitfalls, and everything in between. Before we get into that, we just wanted to let you know that we are dedicated to keeping this podcast 100% independent and member-funded. We really find it is important not to have um, outside influence from advertising on this show. We want to be able to practice what we preach all the time. So with that, there are two big ways to support us. I'm going to tell you about the first. You can sign up for our Patreon membership at www.patreon.com backslash the growth equation. For as little as $5 a month, you get all kinds of neat bonuses, access to a monthly book club where we bring in best-selling authors for live Q&As, a quarterly mastermind group, eBooks, guides to resilience and sustainable success, and all sorts of other great stuff. So check that out, www.patreon.com backslash the growth equation and uh, see what it's all about and start cashing in on some of these great bonuses. And if you haven't yet, just a reminder, check out Brad's new book, The Practice of Groundedness, A Transformative Path to Success That Feeds, Not Crushes Your Soul. You've heard about us talking about it. We did an entire podcast on the book. It is getting rave reviews from not only readers, but people more who have skin in the game, performers at the highest level. So I've read it. Brad obviously wrote it. Check it out. You won't be disappointed. All right. So coaching. Here we go. Um, this was precipitated by... Uh, long feature in The Guardian around the industry of life coaching, and in particular, one woman's business to coach other life coaches, create a certification program, charge gobs of money to get certified, and then have no real quality control or accountability. So we are going to come back to that piece. But first, I think it's important to lay the groundwork What are we talking about when we're talking about coaching outside of a traditional sense? All right. So here we're talking about, I think we're getting at kind of coaching as a means to improve performance. And coaching outside in the sporting world, we're used to thinking of like, oh, yes, everybody has coaches to get better at running or shooting a basketball or what have you here well that's performance in the world of sport but what we're talking about outside of is performance in your life or your workplace right so it's no different we're just kind of applying those skills to make you either more efficient at like performing your day-to-day work like setting boundaries so that you have We'll call them practice schedules where you can do deep focus work or working through sticky situations or failure points or problems um, in whether it be your work life or your practical, you know, outside of work life. 
Yeah, and it used to be for the longest time that coaching in a traditional workplace setting was for failures. So you'd get a really poor performance review and you'd get put on a performance plan and you would get a coach. And getting a coach was not something that you wanted to have happen. Over the last five years, there's been a pretty dramatic shift where now coaching in the business world is seen as something that you want because who doesn't want to perform better? Many companies that pay for coaching, they're not doing it for their low performers. They're doing it for their highest performers to help them sustain that performance, to do it in a way where they don't burn out and to continue um, to build. So something that always comes up in my own coaching practice is what's the difference between coaching and therapy? And I think that this is a really important question. The way that I think about it is as follows. Therapy is for individuals who are not functioning at ordinary levels. It helps them get back to functioning at what we would consider ordinary. Coaching is for people that are already functioning at ordinary levels, if not above ordinary levels, that want to improve and get even better and or sustain that level of performance. A coach cannot do therapy. A therapist can coach. I think those are really important distinctions to make. Now, some therapists have outstanding coaching practices. Many therapists stick to more um, bread and butter, anxiety, depression, OCD, and don't coach. One of the biggest differences in the actual practice of coaching versus therapy that I have found in discussions with tons of coaches and therapists is that coaches tend to push people harder and further because they are not worried about emotional injury to those people because they are starting at a baseline of sound mental health and well-being. I've also worked with clients and to this day still have clients that have struggled with anxiety, depression, OCD, they have a therapist to help them there. And then they have me as a professional coach. Is there some overlap? Of course. But I think it's really important that coaching is not the same thing as therapy. And it's a big red flag in the coaching industry when you get someone saying that they are a mood coach or that they coach you to be more positive. Or some people will straight up say, like, they help coach people with anxiety and depression. Unless those people are licensed clinical social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists, those claims are, like, erroneous and potentially harmful. So where does that leave us? You're listening to this podcast. You're saying to yourself, well... I don't have mental health issues, or I'm not currently experiencing mental health issues, or, hey, I've been working with the same therapist for three years. I want to keep working with them, but I'm also in this role at work that I love, and I'm doing pretty good, and I want to even do better. So should I get a coach? What would you say to that person, Steve? I'd say, yeah, sign up. Um, but you know, in all seriousness, I want to circle back on one thing you said before answering your question, which I think is important. And this is regardless of therapy, coaching, or what have you, is if you look at, there's all sorts of codes of ethics, but 
uh, one I'm familiar with is the Association of um, American Association of Sports Psychology, I believe it is. And one of their clear codes of eth- ethics is having clarity on your boundaries of competence. And when we're looking at that coaching versus therapy, like that boundary of competence, like knowing where you have competence to help individuals or uh, tackle different issues is incredibly important. And one thing that you should look at if you're going towards, you know, therapy, coaching, whatever, whatever have you. So I just wanted to state that. Um, Jumping into answering your question there, Brad, is should you get a coach? You know, my answer there is the same that I would give in a athletic standpoint, right? Where is your performance at? And like, are you looking to take it to a level that like you don't have the knowledge, the competency, et cetera, to get to on your own or need assistance to get there? So I'm going to, I'll give you an example. If I'm, if I'm working with, you know, Brad's, you know, son on running or whatever, or or soccer, I'm going to let him play because he's so young, he doesn't need a coach, right? His competency is like, whatever, just run around, kick the ball, you'll figure it out. But if in, you know, 12 years, Brad's son is all of a sudden like trying to get a college scholarship or like make the high school team, then I'm going to suggest a coach because like he's going to that coach, he or she is going to help refine their abilities and take them to that next step. The same thing I think applies when we're looking at coaching outside of the sporting world, whether you're as executive entrepreneur, trying to improve your performance is, are you at the edge of your performance limits in terms of what you know how to do and what to do to get better. If you need outside help on that to push or pull or prod you to that next level, or even ask the questions that might elucidate answers, then I think the answer is like a coach can help because, you know, we all need coaching, which is, I think, some something that Dave Epstein in his wonderful book, Range, essentially lays out in the book which is everyone should have a coach. And you see this now in um, in the medical fields, for example, coaching is becoming a bigger thing. And then, you know, I know from personal experience with my wife is in the teaching field, much, you know, uh, similar to what you stated earlier, coaching used to be like, the sign of the sign of death in teaching, meaning like, oh, your scores are so low, you need coaching. Well, that model is starting to flip and switch where now they have people at each school, often for a couple of different grade levels, who are designated essentially to coach up teachers, even ones who are excelling in the classroom, because you can always improve your performance, always improve your teaching and and get better at what you're trying to do. So it's all great stuff, Steve. I want to take the... um the analogy of my son a little bit further because there's two other reasons I think coaching is really beneficial. And I've seen this in a portion of my own practice over the last, I don't know, five, six years. One is now imagine my son gets drafted by an NBA basketball team 
And while their interests are quite aligned, they're not completely aligned. The NBA team wants to get the most out of my son as possible and win a championship now. My son wants to have a long, sustainable career. My son might be able to go to the owners of the team or even the coach of the team and share 95% of what's going on. But there's 5% that he might not feel comfortable talking about with them because the incentives aren't completely aligned. And the same is true, particularly for leaders high up in uh, professional organizations, that often it's so helpful to have somebody that you know is purely in your corner. So even the clients that I have where their companies completely pay for coaching, a part of my coaching agreement is that I don't talk to anyone but my client. I don't talk to their boss. I don't talk to their HR department. I send the invoices to the company. They pay them, but I don't even want to know them because my obligation is purely to that client. And then the other reason that coaching can be really beneficial is if you're at the very top of an organization, it can be extremely lonely at the top, especially on challenging issues. So for all the coaching and writing and teaching we do about vulnerability, it is hard to be completely vulnerable if you're running an organization because you need people to have confidence in you. So if the ship is sinking and you don't see a path forward and you tell that to a thousand people, you're going to have a lot of resignations the next day and people looking for new jobs. If you tell that to a coach, they can hold that space with you, help you express those feelings and work through the challenges. So those would be the only other two reasons I'd add. I think it's very clearly focused on like skill and competency based, which is what you were alluding to, Steve. And then I think there's also the value of having an advocate that is purely in your corner that only cares about you. And I see this all the time. Um, you know, I don't know. I've had at least six clients where it became pretty clear three months into our coaching relationship that a big part of the issues they were having was they're just at the wrong fit at their organization. And then my job became to help those people find new jobs. And even though in five out of those six cases, their companies were paying for it. But again, like my, as a coach, my whole responsibility is to that person. And I'd argue that it's a good thing for the company too, because ultimately you don't want people that don't want to be there and you don't want people phoning it in. You want them thinking through whether or not they want to be there. And if they don't leaving as fast as possible. Yeah. That incentives being aligned piece is, is incredibly important and why often, coaching from let's say within the organization often is a struggle and you often have resistance as well uh and we have that as writers we have a we have a literary agent which is basically our literary coach and most of the time our incentives are aligned with our publishers but not always and when they're not our agent points that out and goes to bat for us exactly and you see that in in basically every sort of profession i mean even I'll use the sports analogies, but even in high-level sports, as yes, every team has various coaches for different things, but you often see, you know, the top-notch quarterback has a quarterback coach or a performance and strength and conditioning coach who's outside of the team organization. Why does that occur? Because again, the long haul someone aligned with incentives versus like taking the shortcuts of like, Hey, get in there and play now, even if it risks your career or, you know, these exercises or whatever might help you in the short term, but not over the long term. So having someone where that incentive incentives align, and then also can give you that perspective as well 
in a safe and secure space, I think is is incredibly valuable, as you pointed out there. Okay, so coaching is great. Sign up for coaching with Steve and I. Sign up for coaching across the board. That's half the story. The other half of the story is where we started. This Guardian article is very good, and it makes a very accurate case that, you know, if Dave Epstein is writing that everyone should have a coach in range, guess what? Everyone that reads range is starting to look for a coach. And almost overnight, coaching has exploded. There are startups that have AI software for coaching. There are random people that think that they can be a coach. And it is such a young industry that there is no accrediting body that is universal. There is no schooling for coaching. So it is the wild west. And you've got thousands, hundreds of thousands of people out there that are suddenly fashioning themselves as coach. And two of those people are right here on this podcast. So we're going to try to be extremely honest about how we defend our own coaching practice and the benefits of having more coaches out in the world and also the potential harms and the real harms of having coaching explode in this unregulated way. So I think the starting point is, well, how, how, did, how did we get into this kind of executive coaching? And, and I think Steve was mainly focused on coaching athletes at the time. I kind of went first. And long story short is shortly before Peak Performance was published, my writing at Outside Magazine started to take a tilt after hassling the editors at Outside for years to being less about sports and more just about life. And I started to have people reach out to me and ask if I do coaching. And I said, no, I don't, I don't, I'm not a coach. I didn't really at the time know executive coaching was a big thing. It's like six, seven years ago. It wasn't that big of a thing. And then finally, a woman who was at the very top of an enormous organization offered to pay me gobs of money and said, well, coaching is a thing now, and I'd like you as my coach, even if you haven't coached anyone. So talk about imposter syndrome. I felt a lot of it then. And I remember at the time, there was this one person who has still been a close mentor to me. Um, I don't think he'll mind, so I'm going to share his name. His name is Ed Bautista. And he is probably the most well-known business executive coach in Silicon Valley. He's worked with some of the biggest of big names out there. He also is a professor or a lecturer at the University of Stanford, where he teaches the art of self-coaching, which is the most popular class in the most prestigious business school. And I reached out to Ed as a no one. I'm like, hey, I see that you're this coach that is pretty successful, and people are asking me to coach them, and I have no idea what any of this stuff means or if I should do it. And since Ed is such a wonderful guy, he met with me. And that started our relationship. And it was Ed that ultimately gave me the confidence to do this. Now, what's funny is I distinctly remember Ed gave me the confidence to do this. Even seven years ago, what he said is he's like, I've been reading your stuff for a few years now. There's so many people out there that are saying that they're coaches peddling bullshit and your stuff's not bullshit. So you should do it. <laughs> so on the one hand, it's great. On the other hand, if the reason to go into it is because the bar is so low, that gets back to like the catch 22 and the problem of the industry. So from the get-go, the way that I was defending my work and continue to is stating very clearly what I'm not, which is a therapist, stating very clearly what I do, which is 
I coach towards the things that I write about. So there will be no surprises in my coaching practice. It is simply taking the things that I write about, whether it's in articles or our books, and helping you apply them. Because as I've written in Groundedness, and as we've talked about so often on this podcast, there is a huge difference between knowing something and doing it. And the doing is the simpler part, but it is also the harder part. And in my coaching practice, so much of what I do is just help people go from knowing to doing. So that was kind of like my foray into it. It's also how I hold my deco- my coaching as defensible because it's very simple. I give prospective clients, I say, you should read at least one of our books. And these are the principles that I'm going to coach towards. And if you want more than that, then I'm probably not the right person. Yeah, you know, it's it's been interesting watching your journey, Brad, uh, because I remember that that initial conversation on what in the heck is this and should I should I be doing it and am I capable of doing it? And I think we've both had, you know, um, points in our lives and our careers like that where we've called the other person and been like, yo, I got this offer. I'm not sure if I, I can handle this or if I'm uh, equipped or even competent enough to handle it. And it's been, you know, incredibly helpful having those conversations. Um, to give people a uh, background on my kind of journey to this point, I guess, since Brad just went through his as most will know who listen to this podcast, my background is in purely athletic coaching. And that was my career since I got out of grad or since I was in school, actually. I coached while I was in undergrad and all the way through grad school and then afterwards. Um, so the coaching from an athletic standpoint comes very naturally. And as my career progressed, what became very clear is that coaching, the importance of it, what mattered and what impacted kids growing to adults wasn't so much the X's and O's of the training, but what occurred outside of that. And I define that as like helping people not only to perform from a mental or psychological standpoint, in terms of racing or sports or what have you, but also like those lessons, taking them away and applying them to their lives. And as my coaching in the athletic world kind of, you know, um, progressed and came towards its, you know, especially in the college setting, it's natural kind of end and conclusion. What I found myself doing more and more is literally sitting in my office and having small group meetings or one-on-one meetings with people applying a lot of the principles that you know we talked about in our books or other writings and just like having those conversations and doing that coaching that often translated again outside of my quote-unquote day job of trying to make people faster and that's where I kind of took this this next step. Um, well, actually, I'm going to back up a little bit and tell this story. My shift towards what I'll call this kind of performance coaching in sport actually occurred when several uh, professional teams started asking for like input and guidance and work and consulting around this kind of mental performance, like performance coaching world and brad and i again similar to his experience with 
you know, executive calling them to get coaching. Like we had this conversation on like, oh, here's so-and-so like pro sports team and athletes. Like this is outside my wheelhouse of running specific stuff. Do you think we, I can handle this and how do I handle this? And similar to Brad, just kind of dove in and, and did my best. And that was kind of the transition point, I think, towards more of this performance coaching. And over the last, you know, since moving on from the collegiate athletic coaching world, you know, I've moved into more of this performance, not only in sport, but executives, you know, entrepreneurs, all that uh, business, working people, writers, whoever, who need coaching to apply some of the principles we talk about. And the last thing I'll say is similar to Brad. I think, and we'll dive into this, I I often emphasize what I know, what I write about, give them or tell them to read books. Most of the time they come to us from reading a book so they know what we're talking about or from reading a newsletter and I've subscribed to the newsletter so they know our shtick. But my first you know, conversation with them is often around what I, what I know about. And let me hear what your issues are or what you're looking for this or looking to get out of this. And then I'm going to be very clear and transparent on whether I think I have the competency or not to handle it. So that's how I would, so it's, that's how I would explain it. Books, competency, where does that competency come from? Again, writing, researching, but also experience, not only in the athletic realm, but in the, uh, different performance structures, which gives me the confidence to uh, apply some of this stuff. And then my my last fallback on this is as well is from an academic standpoint, although not certified in anything, like my academic standpoint, like has a deep... Um, of a lot of background, enough background in sports psychology to actually meet the like standards for different certifications for mental performance consulting and stuff like that. So I tell them I'm familiar with this based on my background and I try and make it very clear on what I know and what I don't know and what I apply and what I don't apply. Okay. So that's how we defend the work that we do. What if a skeptical listener is like, well, everyone out there that fashions themselves as a coach has that kind of story? I mean, the first thing that I'd say, I'm asking this kind of rhetorically, kind of to you, kind of to myself, is again, I just put the books in front of them and be like, here are my books. This is the stuff that I am an expert on. So like, th- th- these are my credentials as much as anything. And in the world of coaching, I think right now, given that it is the Wild West, the the fact that I can put a book down in front of someone and say, these are my credentials, those are the most valuable credentials there are. Because like with this Guardian article that was very critical laid out is that the other credentials are like Pam Olive's coaching certification or like Justin Smith's crush it coaching. And you get like a printed out certificate because you paid some guru $10,000 to go to their conference for a weekend. And unfortunately, that's largely where coaching is. There are some certifying bodies that are a little bit like perhaps have more teeth to them, but not really. I know that Georgetown has like a master's in coaching or some sort of like new coaching course, but same thing. It's like a night school course that costs $15,000. And I'm not saying that it's not great. 
I'd rather have the Georgetown course than the Pam Olive weekend, you know, crush it conference certificate. But, you know, I don't know what they're teaching in that course. I can tell you that the best executive coaches that I've come across, starting with Ed Batista, they don't go to these various certifications. They've just been doing the, the, the practice. Yeah, you know, this is a this is something I've thought about a long time. And I think this is something that actually branches out beyond just like the executive coaching or the performance coaching world. Um, I mean, it's something every every kind of new or innovative field struggles with. And I'm going to talk about it in athletic certification and then we'll bring it back because I think this is important because you just made a point there that like the best coaches, the best executive coach, we'll say Ed Baptista is a good friend of ours um, and a good mentor. Like he doesn't have the certification. So that's that that tells you something, right? It doesn't tell you that certifications are necessarily bad, but it tells you that the field isn't at a point yet like other fields maybe other medical fields where the certification is a standard or a barrier to entry that tells you of who's good or who's not which is what these certifications become and it's it's very similar in the athletic world as i said let's talk about this in the athletic world let's take track and field there's various certifications you can get from USA Track and Field, from other U.S. road running things that certify you as a coach. Many, many good coaches who coach at the college scene, the professional scene, don't have those certifications. Myself, you know, included in that in that regard. Because what are those certifications? Again, weekend courses where you pass pass a test. Okay. Same with strength and conditioning. Certifications have become a big thing. What are certifications? Weekend things where you pass a test. And I think there's 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 like a lot of good can come out of certifications or standards as they create a barrier to entry of good and bad. But if the barrier to entry isn't too high, then like in most certifications of growing industries like executive coaching, performance coaching, strength and conditioning, track and field coaching, whatever you have you, like they don't do a good job as a sorter because their primary thing, and if you we talk about incentives again, their primary incentive is to essentially make money, be a revenue source for whatever certified like industry or body there is at that point so it's this really difficult thing to like grapple with where i think a lot of times we say oh certifications are the answer certifications are the answer but you know again in a in the sports world like they haven't done a good job so i'm not saying they're good bad and different but I don't think it's the like catch all answer that, you know, to organizing a field of study or a field of job performance. Right. And it's also very interesting when you when you say that because it makes me think of um of psychoanalysis and the certifications are no doubt important, as we stated at the opening. But there are lots of 
psychologist and therapist that I don't buy what they're selling and I wouldn't go near them with a 10 foot pole. So like just because someone has the certification even there doesn't mean they're good. And it's funny because like when I think about how I would choose a therapist or how I would counsel someone to is I would want to find someone that comes from a particular like therapy tree. So in the coaching world, we talk about like coaching trees. So there's like the Ed Batista coaching tree, like people that he's mentored. And in the therapy world, it's like, okay, who came from like the Stephen Hayes therapy tree? Or who came from the Beck therapy tree? He's cognitive behavioral therapy. Versus for my own temperament and based on what I've seen from the evidence, I wouldn't want someone that came from like the Jungian therapy tree. I'd find their books interesting, but I wouldn't want them to be doing therapy with me because their models aren't evidence-based as far as I'm concerned. So, but they still have that certificate. So it's really tricky because like, is a certificate better than not having a certificate? Yes, unless you're hiding behind that certificate to practice quackery. I mean, look at like the, the what's his face, Dr. Oz, right? Who's been great on COVID, by the way, because he has like 4 million people watch his show and he's treated COVID very seriously. But those 4 million people are also exposed to, you know, Oz MD talking about like various colon cleanses all the time that as far as I know are not evidence-based, but he still has that certification. So how do you know whether or not to like listen to Dr. Oz? So it's really, really, really tricky. And I come down on the side probably because this is like the more traditional part of my brain. The like certifications are still a net positive, particularly in entrenched industries that have been around for a while, but they are not everything. And in newer fields, they probably carry less weight. And maybe it's like our three-legged stool when we write of, you know, science, history, practice. Maybe there's like some kind of stool of selecting a practitioner, which is like certificate coaching tree or mentorship tree and school of thought. I don't know. Or referrals from other people. It's hard to say. And then the last thing I'll say before I stop this rant, I'm not really like going in any particular direction, is I think what makes it even harder in caring fields such as coaching or therapy is that you can get into manipulative relationships really fast where you think someone is doing a great job, but they've actually like put you in their cult. And we'll put the guardian story in the show notes because that's basically what happened here. And there's been accusations of other notorious executive coaches that have similar cultures with their their clients and their staff. And then one more thing. Ah, I'm still going. So this is now just like, you know, Brad's personal opinion. There's there's no evidence basis. I don't want to like, you know, attribute this to anyone but myself. But I think another one of these like heuristics that I have is is a practitioner running a business or are they practicing? So are you a coach that also coaches coaches and has a certification program and has 150 other coaches under you? Or are you a coach that has their own practice and takes the craft very seriously? And it's not to say that you can't have people that do both, but it seems that most of the people that turned out to be hucksters tend to be more interested in certifying a million people for $1,000 each in their method than actually coaching. Yeah, because that's where the money's made, you know? I mean, that's that's where, I, I mean, not all the money, but that's like the quick quick path to making it, 
you know. And I think, you know, circling back and giving some structure to this, I think if you look at what is the value of a certification is non-incompetence. Because let's be honest, like unless we're talking about, you know, something like, uh, I don't know, medical school where you're specializing in surgery, where your test, your skills are tested like at various points along the way. And it's a very long, long path. We can feel relatively confident, you know, pretty dang confident, not a hundred percent sure, but pretty dang confident that, you know, that surgeon knows how to do surgeon surgery competently. Right. Um, but most and there's of- uh, real quick, real quick, real quick to interject there. There's also even other levels there. Like, are they practicing it like a big healthcare system that has their own quality standards, or are they practicing out of their basement? And we think that the person at the big healthcare system is probably more trustworthy than the person practicing out of their basement. Right, hundred percent. So there's different levels there. But I, you know, I, I, I think the easier it is to get a certification or whatever standard you have, um, the less it does a job of competency and more it just serves as like this slight barrier to entry. And I think, you know, if I'm, I I think the barrier to entry is, is a good thing in general because it like dissuades hucksters and that stuff. But again, if you look at the barrier to entry and you say it's a weekend certification or, you know, I'm going to go back to the certifications I know really well, which is the strength and conditioning one where it values a weekend course and a passing of a test more so than if you have a master's or PhD in like exercise science or physiology or even strength and conditioning, right? In my head, I would value the person who has the PhD in exercise science to tell me what to do from a strength and conditioning side versus the person who has the weekend cert. But in the college athletic world, for example, the person with the long academic career and background couldn't coach strength and conditioning in the in the for the football team, for example, um, but the person with a English degree and the weekend certification could. So my 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 reason for putting that out there is because, as you just stated in the the surgeon doctor example, Brad, is there's different layers of this, and I think it's about looking at the filters. And like the context surrounding it and using that to determine like, is this person competent, like reliable, ethical? And that's circling it all the way back. Like books for us are a different barrier to entry, especially books published under, you know, major publishers is a different barrier to entry that tells people like these people have competency. But then again, there's all sorts of quack, crazy books that sell a lot of stuff published by like influential publishers that are batshit crazy. So no barrier to entry or signal of status or competency is perfect. That's where you have to kind of look at the holistic approach and see like, is this person 
you know, selling, providing, you know, something that I think is of value and in a reasonable ethical way. It's funny, as you were talking through that, I just looked up the guy that does all of my coaching and my strength training. And he, I'm like one of the least good athletes that he coaches. He's coached Olympians and he has no certification, but he's got, uh, you know, degrees in exercise science from North Carolina, but, and he could pass that test probably in like two minutes. So my guess is there's also like some of his temperament, like this is bullshit. I'm just not going to take it, but he's been nothing but a great coach. And again, not just to me, but to people competing at 10 times higher levels than me. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's the point on some of this. And I think that's where it's like really the answer is not to get in the weeds, but often the answer in these situations is like, oh, just certification standards, et cetera. But it, I don't it, in fields like this, it's not that is clear cut, you know, if, if right. And it do your homework on the person, because if if I didn't see that he studied at North Carolina for six years, exercise science, then I probably would want to see a certification. And if none of that stuff's there, then I'm like, you know, this is Brad strength and condition coach, which no <laughs> one should go to. That's true. So it's, you know, it's, it's difficult, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a struggle. But one of the things that I kind of come back to is I think of, well, if take your favorite coach, whether athletic or outside, if Greg Popovich came up to me and said, Hey, I'm going to coach you to, um, be a better writer. You know what? I'd probably listen to Greg Popovich, not exactly on writing skills, but I know the dude can like coach and get the best out of people to perform. And I think like those skills like translate across. And I think this is where if we're coming back, going full circle, and this is where fields if we're we're having this debate on certification, whatever, I think any field where there you're trying to fix or address or get back to quote unquote like some baseline and there's potential harm or downside, like medical fields, therapy fields, social work, etc., then very strict barrier to entries make makes sense like very hard standards barrier to entries make sense if we're talking about performance fields whether athletic or you know work executive etc i think there it's where this kind of nebulous mixture comes in instead of the strict you know um kind of therapy certification standard uh that's you know, important. There could still be a lot of downside and harm though in, in, in coaching, I think, because like you could have someone work themselves into burnout. You could neglect to see that someone actually is like becoming depressed and not make a proper referral to get that person help. You could try to go way above your head and try to do therapy for depression as a coach and take someone down the wrong path. So I don't, I, I think that I hear what you're saying and I still think it's like more complex and murky. And then another thought that I had with your Popovich example, which is a great one. And maybe this is kind of what's happening in like executive coaching, performance coaching, life coaching is, are you ultimately just going to have like a class of like elite coaches that everyone knows about because they're so great and they've got huge resumes and defensible work. And then they're going to charge high rates 
And then you're going to have a bunch of hucksters charging $100 an hour to do life coaching based on like, I don't know, a Gwyneth Paltrow video that they watched. Probably. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that's it, it. It's like the the and that's the, that's the guardian. That's back to the guardian yeah. article. Like it's this I, I don't want to name names and incorrectly and I forgot the name and the name doesn't matter. But it's this woman who sounds like she was actually like a pretty good coach and her models were based on cognitive behavioral therapy and she was helping a ton of people. And then she decided that she wanted to certify people in her method and started running all these retreats and courses and charging a ton of money. And then she's got 100,000 acolytes who think that now they can be coaches because she taught them, you know, a two weekend course where she doesn't even show up at the course. And those are the people that are, they're getting screwed because ultimately their business aren't going to be sustainable because they don't know what they're doing. And they're screwing over other people because they have no business claiming to be a coach. So maybe that's just what happened is like there's this two tiered program. Like yeah. I would trust Ed Batista with my career in a freaking heartbeat, but so would everyone because everyone in this world knows that he's a phenomenal coach. He's been doing it for 20 years. He's seen it all. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think we're going to go round and round on this because this is the, the, the difficulty of any sort of profession or job or activity where you're helping people, you know? And often I think, I think you've got to like, Unfortunately, like the onus comes on the people like, you know, obtaining coaching or getting coaching to do their homework to figure out what works. No different than I think in the athletic world where, you know, if if Brad's son becomes super, you know, basketball star, I'm sure Brad would go to our friends who work in or coach in the basketball world and be like, hey, what should I look like? look for for coaching you know what does a good coach look like who can i get recommendations and that's not the perfect system and not everyone has access to that but i i think that like again you're checking your standards um you're seeing what you want to get out of it and you know go and making your best guess on on things this is good i think this is a good place to end because we've been kind of all over Let's try to summarize some of the key principles here that could be useful for people thinking about finding a coach, becoming a coach, or just applying this kind of thinking to other areas of their life. The, the first thing that came to mind for me in a summary was this notion that when the credentials are really hard to get and they require a lot of work, they're probably more valuable. A PhD in cell biology requires a lot of work and is hard to get you have a pretty high degree of trust that a PhD in cell biology knows what they're doing when it comes to cell biology, not necessarily when it comes to like politics as, as we've seen with some PhDs going off the reservation as of late. Um, in fields that are new and there aren't entrenched hard to get credentials, it is kind of the wild west. And the best thing that you can do is ask someone what their approach is and what makes their work defensible, get references and make the best educated choice that you can, and then be willing to pivot if it doesn't feel right. And in fields where there is some level of credentialing, um, I'm going to like a LCSW level where there's a lot, but it's not like 10 years, the credential goes a long way. And ideally, 
If not certainly, you want to know what kind of school of therapy that person comes from, what type of things that they treat, what's their approach, and if they can't answer those questions or they don't answer those questions in a way that fits with what you're after, they're probably not best for you. And I keep coming back to that example. You can have an LCSW that does dream analysis, and that could be a perfect fit for you, or you could think that that's not evidence-based. And you could have an LCSW that does acceptance and commitment therapy, and both of those people have the same certifications. They both look good on paper, but based on what you're looking for, one of those people might be considered a quack and the other one might be considered a great practitioner. Yep. I think uh, to Steve's point too, they probably won't really mess you up. Like the LCSW that does dream therapy, I might not think dream therapy works, but I don't think that person would make my situation that much worse. Whereas when there's not a credential there, someone could really mess you up. Yeah. Yep. It, it kind of narrows the narrows the the potential harm a little bit um yeah i i agree with everything you said i think that's a great way to end and summarize the only thing i'd add is if you're looking for coaching you know what's the best way if i'm looking at athletic coaching how do i determine who's good or not i go watch them coach i go watch one of their games right if they're yelling at their kids then i'm having second thoughts if i'm looking at for executive coaching what do you do? You have that conversation where you're that initial conversation where you're asking questions. If you're going down that route, what kind of therapy, what are your strategies? Like if there's therapy there, right? If they're licensed to do it, what are your strategies? What are your approaches? What are your mentors? Like, how do you handle these things? Like it's, it's the same thing. You're sorting through the mess to kind of get an idea of if they have like competence and they're headed in the same direction that, that you are or you want to be. Love it. All right. There you guys have it. Hopefully this was helpful. Um, parsing through some of the weeds on, on coaching and, um, yeah, we'll catch you next time. If you enjoy the conversation, again, please, please, please consider supporting us on Patreon, www the growth equation, sorry, www.patreon.com backslash the growth equation. Um, the gold tier has a quarterly mastermind group where about 50 people get together for two hours once a quarter and we all coach each other. So on the topic of coaching, it is very informal. We know that. And um, it's something that's been super valuable to a lot of the, the people in that group. So that's one of the bonuses amongst many others. So please check it out www.patreon.com backslash the growth equation and we will catch you next week. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter at B Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.